This is Crucial Tech, a podcast about technology that affects all of us in a format that allows you to consume it in the time it takes to go to and from the grocery store. I'm your host, Lou Covey, and I probably know more about it than you do. And if I don't, I know someone who does. But first... This episode of Crucial Tech has been brought to you by a generous donation from Ian Thornton Trump, the CISO for SciJax, an IT services and IT consulting company in London, England. SciJax is an award-winning technology company and provider of digital threat intelligence services to international corporations, law enforcement agencies, and the public sector. And Cyber Protection Magazine and Crucial Tech thanks you for the donation. And now to our new episode, Hi, folks. This is Lou Covey with Crucial Tech, and today I've got an interesting man, Dr. James Norrie. I always have interesting men, but sometimes interesting women. But in this case, this is something we've been trying to put together for a couple of months. Uh, I think you've probably heard about all the storms and issues we've been having with weather in California. Well, I, I ended up having uh, two power outages and two internet outages that we had to keep rescheduling this. And I think it might have been the universe telling us for a particular moment to do this because I've started to do some study on the area of chat GPT. And the gentleman I've got with me today is Dr. James Norrie, uh, who is a professor at uh, York College of Pennsylvania, uh, has uh, been there for looks like six years and nine months, according to his LinkedIn profile. Yep. And uh, before that, uh, he was a student of various things. And one of the things that really jumped out at me was the University of Strathclyde. I believe that's in Scotland, right? It is. Yes. Uh, And his thesis was on comparative copyright law across major Western law jurisdictions in a relationship to protecting technology, intellectual property rights effectively. And that's what I want to talk to you about, Dr. Nori. Thank you for joining us today. My absolute pleasure to be here, Lou, and thanks for having me. All right. So um, ChatGPT is a big deal. It is indeed a big deal. It could be a big deal for a good reason, or it could be a big deal for a bad reason. And I've had a basic problem with technology since I got involved with it, uh, going back to when I was working with nuclear missiles. (laughs) And uh, it it seems like we develop stuff saying it's going to be good, and then it gets changed. And I think that process has gone faster with generative AI, which really isn't an AI, it's a large language model. Uh, but it's gone faster because even before it became commercially available, cyber criminals were using it to create malware. That was the thing. The, the announcement came out, I think, in de- early December, and two weeks in th- was a story about how they were how somebody had used uh, ChatGPT to create a new form of ransomware malware. Yeah. Well, let's linger there for a second for your listeners, Luke. 
yeah. points you make are really, really fundamental. So in one of my other jobs, as you know, I also happen to be the CEO and founder of CyberCon IQ. And one of the things we do is help companies combat ransomware and malware and other kinds of human factors attacks. And we were astonished by the speed with which these new tools are being put to use to create new memes and much more targeted social engineering attacks. Now, what your listeners might want to be aware of is something that I, I think you and I would agree on. Let's, let's test that. Frequently, what happens is we have a tech innovation, and we do release it with this grand sense of promise, and we're all anticipating the good. But like many things that involve social, political, or legal progress, we can't absorb pace of the change, and inevitably, it begins to pose really new problems, new challenges, new threats. And then eventually what happens is the good is perhaps overwhelmed by the bad, or maybe they coexist. So in this case, the frightening statistic that I read recently is that there is a new, a new, brand new meme in a threat that is ransomware-related every 1.7 seconds now, Lou. And it's all being machine-generated. And then in addition, the positioning of that is automatically done to amp it up from general phishing, phishing by taking individual contextual information that's easily available by mining all of most of our social profiles. And you put the two together, and the bad guys are going to be able to scale this before we are able to scale our defenses. And so what you just mentioned to me is exactly why the promise of technology always underwhelms, because the promise is never matched to the threat, and we never have an opportunity as a society to get ahead of the really fundamental issues that this new technology delivers for all of us. Yeah, and how do we fix that? I mean, well, we're, we're talking about legislation now you know, that will actually control this <laughs> you know, uh, and being written by people who have no understanding about what it is. Right. So, so don't get me started on, on politics. We'll, we'll try and leave this aside. But you're right. We do not have leadership in Washington in either house that probably truly fundamentally understands this. So they rely on information that is primarily delivered of advocacy and all of the things that happen with large tech companies trying to set the agenda. And I can understand as the CEO of a large tech company, why you would want to influence government policy, because it is fundamentally critical to your destiny as a private company. So I, I understand that. But, but the idea of a generative AI is one that we should tread very carefully about as a society. And we should tread carefully because you mentioned the law, and that is you know, one area of, of expertise for me and deep love and passion. And IP and IT law can't keep up with the pace of change. And so the law, by definition, and particularly common law jurisdictions like the United States and Canada and UK and Australia and a whole bunch of countries around the world, we rely on cases coming through, Lou, to help define how to interpret both existing law and potentially how to shape new laws. Well, you can imagine it is going to take months or years before we start to see some of the first vestiges of those cases start to make their way through courts and appellate courts. So it's going to be to catch the law up. In the meantime, what do we all do? And let me see if I can uh, use an example. So, Lou, we're going to pretend that you are a painter. What kind of painting do you really like? So when you go to a museum, what kind of art do you like? Um. I really don't like painting. <laughs> I'm, but I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm of the same opinion of Michelangelo that I, I dislike painting and that it resembles, resembles sculpture. And I dislike sculpture and that it resembles painting. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But if you were in a museum, what might you 
be looking at as a genre of art? Would it be contemporary? Would it be European masters? What might you look at? Probably European masters. Okay. So you're in a museum, see a piece of art displayed, and that piece of art, of course, belongs to the museum, and it, it is in a fairly public space, right? And you right. go and look at that, and you absorb that as the human being. So it provides some input, sensory input to you in the form of the effect it has on what you're seeing and what you're thinking and creating. And so when you then go after you've had all this stimulation and input, you go as a human to create your own painting, then those influences, you don't them and you haven't done anything with them. They have only inspired you. Would that be fair? Yeah. Okay. So there's no question of ownership. Right. Okay. Now let's go into the world of generative AI. And we know digitally, in order to have an image appear inside a computer, it has to be digitized, right? We would agree. Right. And in digitizing it, we pixelate it. And as we pixelate it at some level of detail, we are bringing that image down into teeny tiny dots. Now, for any resolution of pixelation, we kind of calculate if we were to take those pixels and start to combine them into something new, and we have a very intriguing legal problem, don't we, Lou? Because the image is not an inspiration to the artificial intelligence generator, is it? It's digital input. And so the amalgam of those hundreds or thousands of pixelated images that allow these new tools to create something, digital art, and we've had this conversation because this is starting to happen, the really interesting is who owns that? Is it the person that the language model that perhaps creates the image? So it would be the software company? Or do we all have a bit ownership in the sense that you could really trace back each of those individual pixels and say, what teeny tiny percentage of each of those original quote unquote digitized images actually resulted in the final image, right? And you could do some sort of calculation that would say, I own one one thousandth of it or something, you know, it would be really intriguing legally. But the idea of ownership when you're dealing with something that belongs to somebody else, even in the public domain, and that is now imported, whether we're talking about the printed word, visual images, whether we're talking about anything else, it really opens up a whole new question about ownership and intellectual property. And let's be clear, we've had intellectual property rights as defined in law for uh, the better part of almost 300 years. We long ago realized that human endeavor and what we create has value. Mm -hmm. What do we do when machines render that process moot? That is both a social and a legal question. And I don't know that anybody, Lou, in Washington is even thinking that broadly. They're more concerned about what it may mean without understanding the fundamental way that society are going to be um, asked to resolve the issues of how this technology will evolve and be used in future. And so it, it's going to overtake us before we have a chance to catch anything up. Well, that's depressing. Uh, well, and I don't mean <laughs> entirely depressing because here's the other thing. It can be breathtakingly important too. It can, it can provide. So for instance, I, one of the classes I teach at, at uh, York College Pennsylvania is is, um, is the cybersecurity and cybersecurity and national security. So we did a really interesting thing. We were looking at this very question. So I had the students put into ChatGPT the request for it to create a rap lyric about the dangers of AI. Alu, 
I was amazed, the students were amazed, not only how thoroughly it could self-describe its own threats, which was quite interesting. And that goes to your point about this really being a language learning model, deep language learning model, but able to generate a lyric. Then we were able to go and actually have that lyric fed into a, a machine that digitized the voice of Snoop Dogg. And we had Snoop Dogg doing a rap about the dangers of AI. It took the class more than, no more than 15 minutes to do that. Now, that endeavor would previously have been an enormous undertaking, right? So there is something to be said for the speed and the capability of these machines to do certain things. And that example is kind of benign. It's just fun. But imagine that on something that really is a human problem. Think about the impact on things like um, radiology and um, radiography and reading underlying CAT scans, PET scans, x-rays. The, the speed and the clarity with which we're going to be able to get those results that goes well beyond the human eye. I mean, there's a great right? Let's think about what happens when you're dealing in professions like my own, like if you're thinking about law or medicine or engineering, where massive amounts of information that are written need to be synthesized and amalgamated. Imagine what it would be like instead of having, you know, a poor recently lawyer pouring through hundreds or thousands of cases that you could do that in a blink and identify those that had the perfect fit for your case pattern and move to the really important question of how you'd use that information to defend your client or to advance your client's interests rather than the grueling work of sifting and sorting through that. So, so tasks that we take for granted today will change overnight. That's the promise of AI. I think we would agree, Lou? Yeah, with okay. some provisos. I mean, okay. as you've been talking, I've been thinking of a lot of different issues. And I, I've been writing about AI for about five years now. Yep. Uh, so I've talked to a lot of experts and while it's this, this could be debatable to a certain degree, there mm -hmm. are basically three components to any, any AI. Okay. Number one is the, the data source. Right. Some, some people call it a data lake or database, but it's yep. a lot of data. Okay. Mm -hmm. The next is the machine learning, which is also yep considered to be a large language model, okay? And finally, there's deep learning. Okay? Right. Deep learning is what's missing from almost everything that's identified as an AI. That's why a lot of people are saying that uh, ChatGPT and BARD and whatever Microsoft yep. is doing is not really an AI, it's a large language model because right. all you're doing is feeding a lot of data into the machine, uh, machine language or machine design and it's pumping out stuff based on the data. The deep learning. Well, even is, before three, back to one and two for a second, because I think you're all, sure. that's really fundamentally important. But even before you get to deep learning, I have a question. How many of these are capable of figuring out the providence of the data though? And this is the issue that I think people don't understand about your point one and two. No model, if you stop at one and two, is of any value unless it can sort out whether the information sources that it's actually using are reliable, reputable, and informative to the question. Exactly. And judgment. And there you go. And there is the line that I think you're trying to draw, which is really astute and criti critically important for listeners to understand. Unless you can mimic judgment, which is the deep learning part, the first two are nothing more than enormous data models, exactly what you described. Yeah. But the Fear that so many researchers like I have, and, and my colleagues share in this fear, 
is it scoops up information currently from all kinds of sources, right? Not all of which should be scooped up and treated equally. So then you get into the question of what are the rules, right? Where you've been hearing all this stuff about programming, you've probably heard the tragic story of the the suicide in Belgium with the the man who was depressed. You've probably heard about the New York Times reporter who was encouraged to leave his wife. Um, You know, so so we know that the boundaries of machine learning, especially in a large language model, need to be framed by a set of rules. And the instant you're into a set of rules, absent judgment, then you are into something that is not number three. Do we agree? Right. Okay. And so really when we get to number three, it's, it's going to change some of the opportunity and some of the risk, but getting to three from one and two is not as obvious as you know, from your previous conversations, I'm sure anybody. And there, I, I was actually commissioned to help an engineer write a book on how to create unbiased AIs. Good luck. Yeah, well, that's the thing is that after six months into it, we both came to the conclusion it is not possible to create an AI that is unbiased. Well, because human judgment has bias. Yeah, and that's the thing. And as long as you've got humans creating it, Hmm? regardless of where they're getting the data from, because the data was created by humans, you're going to put that bias in. And the problem with the internet or the data that is in the internet that is being fed into these AIs is not vetted it is right. it is it is well as as the, the old saying goes 90 percent of everything is crap so 90 percent of everything being fed into, into the these ais is crap and, so lou how long in technology have we had the phrase garbage in garbage out oh yeah right. going actually uh, first time i heard it was when i was taking a look at a failure analysis of a trident two uh, nuclear missile so there you go <laughs> So 30 years more. Oh yeah, so, more. <laughs> okay. So exactly. I, I so when people react to the current dilemmas by saying who got the rule wrong or who didn't program this right or who allows this to happen, we need to take what you just said and we need to understand at a, at a software level what's really happening. So you have code, and code is going to accept into as an example the prompt. And you're going to put a question in and it's going to be taught how to undo that, that prompt and sort out where in the huge universe of possible data sources it has, which ones it thinks are relevant to crafting a conversational reply. That is all chat GPT is doing. Mm-hmm. Nothing more, nothing less. So it's more conversational and it's able to produce output that is therefore more usable in a human context. Hence, in higher education, one of the fears of all of my colleagues that they express to me all the time is, what are we going to do when students just use chat GPT to generate all of their essays or research papers? And my question is, we're already there. So what are you doing about it? And how are you embracing it and bringing it into the classroom? Because you are quickly going to get to the point where although there are things you can do to detect it, they too will eventually fail to detect it. But here's the question. Do we summarize a college degree by our ability to write a properly sourced academic paper or to actually consider critically and with an eye to the quality and the caliber and the authenticity of information? What we should be teaching students is data literacy. 
we shouldn't be too concerned because I'm going to tell you, except in a college or university atmosphere, in the real world, people plagiarize and steal all the time. Mm-hmm. This is the natural part of being a professional. You'll go to your network and say, has anybody does it? Has anybody, I, I, this is going on as we speak, Lou. I'll bet you there are a bunch of people asking colleagues, hey, what's your AI policy? Have you, have you developed any idea of what you're going to do about AI? How's AI affecting your business? And that's how it's going to start, right? So what's natural about being a human being is we connect, we share, we're social creatures, and the same thing is true professionally. So we need to be teaching students how to use these tools with a keen eye to the critical analysis of what they produce so that we can take the benefits and leave the negative on the side. And we need to teach human beings how to do that. Because if we don't, Lou, we are headed for a disaster. And in particularly our current political climate, where our enemies, those who would destroy us from the inside out, and that's a whole other podcast I'd love to do with you sometime, but there are mortal enemies of this shining beacon of democracy on the hill who would like to see it slide into an abyss. And so they are disrupting us from the inside out. And artificial intelligence is going to give them a voice and a platform that is going to be incredibly persuasive. Let me just warn your listeners. If it was able to cause a depressed man in Belgium to take his life, is it possible that it would also very credibly contribute to false partisanship, as an example, to false memes, to interference in our election processes, to um, advocacy for ideas that would stoke domestic terrorism. I could go down the list of things at scale that you could do with this if you were an enemy of the United States. And I don't believe that our educational system, our law system, our political uh, masters, I don't think any of them have really thought through that kind of a threat. Well, I I don't think they have. And I think part of the problem is, is what you alluded to, essentially applying critical thinking to the development of new technology. And to data sources that feed it. Yeah. Garbage uh, in. As, as I mentioned, we, we came up, the, the engineer and I came up with the resolution that you cannot create an unbiased AI. But what followed on with that in our conversation that we didn't get into with the, the publisher who decided to reject our opinion altogether mm-hmm. um, was that you really don't want an unbiased AI. What you want is something with a specific bias designed to protect. You're going back to Isaac Asimov's uh, rules of robotics. That right. it, it wasn't going to cause. It, it, it's not that Asimov was saying you can't design a robot that would kill people. No, you have to design a robot that has been given the directive not to kill people. And right. that comes from a very specific um, ethic. That so, And ethics isn't taught in our colleges anymore. Well, I beg to differ. We do teach it as part of our law class. So I agree with you. It's, it's taught. Okay, okay yeah. It's, but I'm, I'm ta- it's not taught in the engineering departments. There you go. So I, I think that is that is true in, in issue. Or if they teach it, they teach it as professional ethics, which is probably different than the kind of ethics you and I are talking about. But it's funny you should mention ethics because one of the assignments in one of my law classes is to go back and watch 2001 A Space Odyssey. And mm-hmm. why? Uh, because of Hal. 
you got it. And no spoiler alert here, because uh, I bet you tons of listeners have never stopped to see this now quite dated movie. But it is so topical and timely because the ethics of what we're about to do, which is when we do get to number or as we move closer to number three, and we enable machines or robots to mimic, even at some substantive level, the kind of interaction, social discourse, and, and if you like, thinking or judgment in some ways, not always, but in some ways that we experience when we're engaging with one another, it can become very dangerous because it can mimic us. It isn't us. It isn't human, but it can mimic human. Mm-hmm. And the extent to which we're going mimicry of humans and in what context is very important. So I, one of my dearest friends um, owns a robotics company. And one of the things that he resists and he says he will never do is he will never, ever create a robot in human form. He will never participate in that because it would become too dangerous. He wants robots to be robots and humans to be humans. And he says, it's not that I don't believe in robots. He he thinks robots like AI and the combination of robots and AI is going to unlock humans from having to do an awful lot of drudgery. It's really great. He said, you'll have a robot that will do the lawn vacuum. You know, this is kind of the uh, future dream that we've always had as futurists about where those good technologies can free humans from drudgery. But if if you take something that mimics a human being and turn a machine into a mimicked human, you cross, in my view, an ethical boundary from which there may never be a return. And that's kind of where we are right now, isn't it? Yep, it sure is. And we're on the cusp of having enough experience to know that this is going to unleash some significant challenges as a society to our political and to our legal um, leaders. They have to get ahead of this curve. Now, it's very hard because technology curves move well ahead of social acceptance, this is not one of those that I think, Lou, and I'm not being alarmist here at all because it's here. It doesn't matter whether we're alarmist or not. So there's no point in panicking. But we really ought to get on with the discussions inside society about what needs to change to equip people to be able to use this for its good and to start to see for themselves using critical methods and tools that need to be developed and taught to people of all ages, by the way, from children all the way up, so that we can sort out, maximize the good while recognizing that it has negative applications that are quite evil and dangerous. So as long as we, like everything else, listen, fire. So I use this analogy in class. When early man began to invent fire, everything was good while they could contain fire, right, Lou? Yeah. (laughs) Then when they can't, oops, okay. AI is like that. So we have the flickering small flame of early AI. And right now, it's somewhat contained and it's spreading fast and growing fast. But what we don't want is a raging inferno. So why not try on this particular advance where so much discussion is occurring with so many very thoughtful people? And I know so many people on this topic, as I'm sure you do, who share our concern and who I think can be part of a solution that is not alarmist. But it requires that we begin to think about that now. And we need to think about it at a human level, not a machine level. The machine level we've proven we can create. Now the question is how do we catch the human side of this equation up? And that's kind of where I I, want to wrap this up with maybe a 
a bit of optimism because for about 50 years now, technology has been seen as something that, yeah, it, it can be bad, but generally we need to, to adopt it and, and, and move forward with it. But we're in an age now where people don't trust technology like they did over the past 50 years. And maybe people are starting to get to the point is, well, wait a minute, maybe I don't want this. I mean, we're even seeing it in social media where you know people are leaving Twitter in droves. Uh, Facebook has become uh, uh, <laughs> pretty much flat. And I actually uh, was talking to uh, a gentleman this last week uh, that's in my current podcast uh, where he, he used the phrase, the collapse of the metaverse. I'm going, wait a minute, has that collapsed already? And, uh, Even before it's fully it, formed, we're going to collapse on itself. It sounds like a black star or something, you know? Yeah, well, it's essentially what he's saying is trillions of dollars have been put into the metaverse that have resulted in nothing. And yeah. investors are getting frustrated, which is probably why things are starting to slow down, is that the people who have the the desire to make a lot of money are saying our money is going away. We've seen it with Bitcoin. We've seen it with the metaverse. Yep. And I think we're starting to see it with generative AI where hey. people are, are finally getting to the point where they say, no, wait a minute, one step at a time, you're going to do what with my job? Yeah. Well, and you know what, a little bit of shameless self-promotion for just a second, Lou. Sure. So I, my latest book is now about three years old. It's a, a limited claim as an Amazon bestseller, but in the book, which is called Cybercon, and its subtitle is Big Tech and Bigger Lies. And it, it addresses exactly this question, but with some optimism. You'll be glad to know, right? Because in the yeah. book, what I say is we can't trust big tech to do what's right by society. That would be right. foolish. They are private enterprises. They are tasked with, to your point, making money for their investors. That's their job. A capitalist society rests on the idea of investors having capital available to management teams, put them to use, making money. And if I'm talking about CyberCon IQ, I understand that. If you're talking about your media firm, you understand that. You know, you got to have money in to get profits out. That's just the way it yeah. goes. So a well understood thing. Therefore, they're not really tasked with doing what's right in society. And we would be foolish, foolish as a society to trust them. That would make no sense to me. And the proof of this would be all of the businesses through the late 1800s and right up until the later part of the, the 19th and, and then the 20th century, we have watched industry after industry prioritize profit at the expense of society. Yeah. Right? So then this is why we have regulation. And so, uh, you know, one of the things we have to start to imagine is holding a big tech, somewhat more accountable. And I think the interesting thing about the current issue of AI is also going to be this. I don't know that AI will get the same shield as we currently have with social media. And again, maybe a topic for a future listener you know, podcast. But we have allowed social media platforms to have a shield. They're not considered publishers. This is, AI is going to challenge that because when they get to this, mm -hmm. I would argue that as Google down and Microsoft and others go down the path of modifying search from simply linking to other content that is original content to amalgamating that content and publishing something original, that they will become publishers. And when they do, I think they've, they've actually jumped that shark. 
Absolutely. And that will fundamentally change higher regime of legal consequence and um, regulation for them in a, in a good way. I think it's about time we got there. So, so listen, here's the optimism. I do believe that ultimately AI will serve society. Like many technologies, it will take us time to embrace and understand what we need to do as a society to respond to the advance. And there's going to be fear and uncertainty and some really negative things initially. But on this one, I'm hopeful that the conversation for me has happened well ahead of the curve. We did not see this same level of engagement and conversation with early social media because it wasn't quite as powerful. I do hear all kinds of great dialogue. And so for your listeners, the optimism is let's get our entire society engaged in this conversation you and I had today. Let's spread that word. Let's have this awareness. Let's build the capacity as human beings to manage this technology for the greater good. That to me is the mantra of optimism around generative AI. That sounds good to me. Uh, Dr. Nori, thank you for your time. And I'm sure we're going to be talking again in the near future. Okay, that's it for this episode of Crucial Tech. We will be revisiting this subject matter on uh, generative AI from time to time uh, this year uh, because there's a lot to to, uh, unpack about this. There are some good things. There are some bad things. There are some things that shouldn't be done and some things that should be done. And if life goes on as it normally does, most of the stuff will be the stuff that shouldn't happen. Uh, I want to thank you for listening. I also want to thank our uh, uh, our donors to this program. If you go to Cyber Protection Magazine uh, or cyberprotection-magazine.com, uh, you can leave us a comment or concern. You can also make a donation to the organization so we don't have to run advertising, which nobody likes anyway. And that's it for this week. Uh, Check in again next week with Crucial Tech. This has been a Footwasher Media production.